Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 10 on March 3rd, 2010. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes under Air Medical Today. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guests are Dr. Daniel Hankins, Medical Director of the Mayo Clinic Medical Transport and current President of the Association of Air Medical Services, and Don Mancuso, the Executive Director and CEO of Ames. Before I introduce my guests, I want to go over some feedback from Episode 9 and cover some recent air medical transport news. I still have not seen big changes to the iTunes store on how Air Medical Today is being listed, which uh, was reported by a listener after episode 7 of the podcast. All the episodes are there, so you should not have any issues downloading them, however. I had a very nice voicemail from Ken Williams, who provided some general feedback on the podcast. I'm going to play that voicemail now. Hi, Ken Lawson Williams. Uh, just been listening to episodes one through five as I drove down from Portland to Sacramento. And uh, good program. Uh, you're getting a little bit more relaxed on your normal delivery, although it still sounds a little bit stiff when you're reading your scripts prior to getting into the interviews, but the interviews are great. Um, especially enjoyed one with Jonathan. Um, has a lot of good things to say. Hope he keeps up the good work. Um, on your piece on AEL, um, they're mentioning simulator training. Um, I know that Orange up in Canada has been doing simulator training for a while, and same with STARS, but I do not believe they have the medical crew in a full motion simulator. They do, however, have a, a full helicopter cabin interior set up and a sim man and all the rest of that stuff. Uh, so it is like you're in your working environment, but it's a stationary environment. Um, and the cockpit cues, if you will, communication with dispatch and the pilots are basically done through radio links as opposed to being more or less in the same airframe. So uh, kudos to AEL for that. Uh, I'd like to, love to see an article on that thing in uh, AirMed Journal. Um, it sounds like they're a good candidate for program of the year, believe it or not. Uh, so anyway, basically keep up the good work. Don't forget there's a lot of fixed-wing people out there as well. Uh, it tends to get overlooked uh, because you don't have the headlines, which is a good thing for us. Uh, I come from the Canadian experience where it's the fixed-wing that are crashing, not the rotor wing, uh, and the rotor wing safety record is totally different. 
So it's uh, definitely interesting to listen to the programs as it is down here. Uh, that's about it for now. Thanks. Bye. Ken, thanks for the feedback, and I am working on the news section to make it more robust and less of me just reading through text. Uh, in fact, last week I actually spent some time uh, with a book called Sound Reporting, which is put out by NPR, which I found very helpful in this area. Your comments on the interviews was appreciated, and thanks also for the information on the simulators. I have not forgotten about the fixed-wing air medical world and do have a program planned for a future episode. I also received a nice email from Bill Quinlan, a communications consultant and a longtime member of our air medical and critical care transport community. I have taken a few excerpts from his email. Ed, I just wanted to email you to say what a pleasure it is that I have found this site. It is very addicting. I'm glad you have taken the time to set this up and keep track of everything. I served on the NACS board back in the 1990s and two terms on the CAMES board. Back then, I worked for the SkyMed MedFlight program in Ohio. I'm now in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I listened to all nine podcasts over the weekend and felt like I had caught up on the last four years I have taken away from the air medical field. I knew every person that you had interviewed and worked with them, except Joe Ty, since my involvement in the air medical field started in 1984. I just wanted to say thank you for doing this podcast, and you sound like a professional broadcaster. Your son should take note on your ability to speak clearly and professionally. Hear that, Jake? And I don't think the interviews are too long at all. I could listen to to them all day. I find you and your guests very interesting and informative. Having a background in communications, I would like to suggest doing an interview with a communications person. Having been in the field for over 25 years, I think it would be nice to do an interview that takes us from the beginning of air transport communications, doing it all with one radio and paper, to what we have now with multi-faced communications center with the communications-based systems and tracking. I believe in the past 10 years, the most growth and change has come in the communications center and how our job is performed now versus back then. Also, I think it would be cool if you could do an interview with all the past Ames presidents and hone in on the challenges each had during their tenure. Again, Ed, I appreciate all your hard work in getting this up and running. If there is anything I can do to help you out, just ask. I hope your father is getting better, and my prayers are with him and your family. Best regards, Bill Quinlan. Bill, thanks again, and I have on my list interviewing all the professional societies, including the National Association of Air Medical Communication Specialists. Uh, thanks also for your comment on my father, who's doing very well now post his open-heart surgery. That's great hearing from you. Remember, I do want to hear from all of you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast. As I have been mentioning for several episodes now, I continue to try and locate all medical and critical care transport fan pages on Facebook. 
if your program or service is not shown in the Favorites Pages tab in the left-hand column on the Air Medical Today Facebook page, please either leave a message on the page or send your page's link to me via email. I would like to be an easy source directory for all Facebook pages so that any program can find and easily fan fellow Air Medical and Critical Care providers. I have added a few more pages since Episode 9. In Episode 8 of the podcast, where Dr. Howard Werman was interviewed regarding the Center for Medical Transport Research as he was getting ready to leave for Haiti, there was a nice article about his work from the Columbus Dispatch. The article said, Howard Werman, who usually spends his workday in board meetings and the well-equipped emergency department at Ohio State University Medical Center, worked in a hot, cramped exam room in Haiti treating the people of Fort Liberty and refugees from the earthquake the week of February 14th. His overall observation was that the medical problems that would be simple to fix in the United States can fester for years in Haiti and become life-threatening. I continue to track news on members of our air medical community who are volunteering their time in Haiti, so please email me uh, and make sure that I include your story in a future episode. For healthcare reform, there's been a lot of activity. Uh, Republican attendees sounded a populist note, citing an American public increasingly skeptical over health reform, and Democrats parried with polls of their own as the healthcare summit between the president and congressional leaders came to a close last week. In a little over seven and a half hours, the bipartisan group traded shots and occasionally ideas over how to find common ground in what has proven to be a Herculean effort to reshape the U.S. healthcare system. But in the end, a clear consensus had not emerged as politics trumped policies and lawmakers reverted to their party line talking points. Even where Republicans and Democrats agree, such as intrastate health plans and other insurance reforms, a path forward on the massive legislation seems dim. Obama's reform proposal remained the centerpiece of the meeting. Republican lawmakers have readied their own platform that places more emphasis on cost containment and less on expanding access to health insurance. The president's proposal has proven contentious for House Democrats who face the uncomfortable position of deciding whether to pass the bill or see the efforts to overhaul the health care system fail once again. Senate leaders are likely to decide this week whether to use reconciliation to unstick the current bill. The move is contingent on the House passing the Senate's version of the bill and then moving a smaller package of changes possibly mirroring the president's plan under reconciliation. Previously, the more moderate ring of the party had been wary of using such a move, but since Democrats lost the ability earlier this year to break a filibuster, it has increasingly become the favored path forward for many lawmakers. Senator Evan Bayh, Democrat from Indiana, warned that Republicans would likely use a series of procedural moves to effectively shut down the Senate for the balance of the year in retaliation if Democrats chose to use reconciliation. 
President Obama said he is ready to compromise with Republicans on health care if they are serious about it, but that an overhaul must go forward. Obama's comments in his weekly internet and radio address this past weekend and two days after the all-day summit across from the White House were the latest sign that Democrats are getting set to try to pass legislation without any Republicans on board. Success will require colossal efforts on the part of Obama and the Democratic leaders to round up votes after a year of corrosive debate and a Senate special election upset in Massachusetts that threw the overall effort into limbo last month. But Obama and the Democrats reject the piecemeal approach sought by Republicans and have no intention of scrapping their 10-year, $1 trillion bill and starting over as the GOP demands. Obama's legislation would ensure some 30 million more Americans over 10 years with a new requirement for nearly everyone to carry insurance and would end insurance company practices such as denying coverage to people with medical problems. Obama plans to release an updated proposal this week. The Senate's Democratic leaders are trying to devise a strategy for passing the legislation with a simple 51-vote majority. There are 57 Democrats in the Senate and two Democratic-leaning independents. Obama said in a letter to congressional leaders that he is willing to consider Republican ideas of expanding pilot programs on medical malpractice, increasing the number of investigators to uncover Medicare fraud, and including high-deductible plans on insurance health exchanges that would be set up under his plan. He also said he would consider increasing reimbursements to doctors for treating Medicaid patients. By incorporating ideas suggested by Republicans at last week's bipartisan White House summit, the White House intends to argue that the drive to enact comprehensive legislation will be a bipartisan effort, even if no Republicans vote for the bill. In a speech today at the White House, President Obama instructed Congress to make a final push for completion of the divisive health care reform legislation. He endorsed the use of reconciliation rules to pass the bill with nothing more than a simple majority. No matter what approach you favor, I think the United States Congress owes the American people a final vote on health care reform, he said, calling for legislators to schedule a vote for the next couple of weeks to bring the long and wrenching debate to an end. Representative Charles Rangel, Democrat from New York's decision to temporarily step down as chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee shouldn't have much of any impact on the health care reform members of the House Democratic Caucus claim. The 79-year-old Democrat who has served in Congress for 20 terms has been one of the chief architects in the health care reform debate where he wrote the tax provisions for the House health care reform bill, including the controversial surtax on wealthy Americans. Rangel said he would vacate the chair after being admonished by the House Ethics Committee for taking corporate-sponsored trips to the Caribbean in violation of the House gift rules. At a briefing following a caucus meeting, Rangel said he did not want his issues to be a distraction for Democratic members heading into the election cycle. Caucus members acknowledged that Representative Pete Stark, Democrat from California, Ways and Means Health Submission, 
subcommittee chairman would be the likely choice to take over for Rangel during his leave of absence. In related news, the House voted 406 to 19 to approve a bill that would strip health insurers of antitrust exemptions granted to the industry under the 65 year old McCarran Ferguson Act. The measure that passed the House would not apply to medical malpractice insurers, although this sector of the industry has been included in a previous version of the bill. The legislation now heads to the Senate for consideration. More than 150 Republicans voted for the bill, yet some have argued that the exemption serves a purpose, that it allows health insurance companies to share data so that they can accurately predict their rates. Without this ability, insurers could raise premiums, Republicans said. Democrats touted this plan will increase competition and lower premiums. In other news... 45% of Americans, or 135 million people, are more than an hour away from primary stroke centers, the facilities that are best equipped to care for them if they are stricken by the condition, according to new research led by the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine that was presented on February 24th at the American Stroke Association's International Stroke Conference in San Antonio, Texas. Less than a quarter of U.S. residents can reach one of those facilities in less than a half hour. The authors say the identification of these gaps in the access is an important step in cutting the deadly toll of stroke, which is the third leading cause of death and the leading cause of long-term disability in the United States. The study revealed one existing way to narrow those disparities— using existing air ambulance resources to fly stroke patients to appropriate care would cut the number of Americans without 60-minute access to a primary stroke center by half. The new study results showed that overall, fewer than one in four Americans, or 22%, have access to primary stroke center within 30 minutes, and just more than half, 55%, can reach one within an hour when ambulances are not permitted to cross state lines. Patients are most able to get to primary stroke center by ground within 60 minutes if they live in the Northeast, that's 64%, followed by the Midwest, 61%. In the South and West portions of the country, just more than half, 52% and 51% respectively, of patients can reach those advanced facilities within an hour. Five states had no in-state ground access to primary stroke centers within 60 minutes, and only in the District of Columbia could all residents reach such a facility in an hour. The addition of air ambulances, however, boosts access substantially. Within a half hour, 26% of the population could reach a primary stroke center, and 79% could be transported to one within 60 minutes. The improvement found was most dramatic in the western United States, where the number of patients transported within an hour would rise to 81% if helicopters were used. The goal of the new research was to think differently about how to deliver stroke care perhaps by policy decisions such as allowing ambulances to cross state lines or using helicopters to more rapidly transfer patients to stroke centers. No national system for acute care of stroke patients currently exists, unlike the regionalized system for transport of trauma patients to hospitals that meet specific care benchmarks. 
making it possible for 83% of the U.S. population to reach a trauma care center within an hour. In addition to air transport of stroke patients to high-level facilities, the authors suggest that other lower-cost solutions could also be employed to extend the net of optimal care to a greater number of patients across the nation. Among the suggestions are the development of an inter-hospital referral network using telemedical technologies to connect smaller or rural hospitals with guidance from specialty physicians trained in stroke care and offering incentives for the development of stroke centers in underserved areas. Jim Schwartz, president and CEO of Dallas-based CareFlight Incorporated, is out to change the way EMTs and paramedics operate in the back of an ambulance, starting with a safer place to work. To date, CareFlight is the only ground service in the United States to completely eliminate side-facing seats in its emergency vehicles. He found out there are no rules for ambulances in the country. They're exempt from Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration rules, and nobody in EMS knows what their accident rate is. Working with the safety expert, Dr. Nadine Levick, and the EMS Safety Foundation, Schwartz began studying emergency vehicles in places like Europe, Canada, and Australia, all of which have much stricter safety standards. One of the first things that they learned was that the standard bench seats have to be changed. They concluded that the European-designed sprinters were the best solution because they have been tested to meet the European standards and already have forward-facing seats built in. CareFlight now has four sprinters in service and another 20 soon to be delivered. In addition to the new seats, the vehicles will have monitoring and suctioning equipment on the forward wall facing the medics and special compartments for loose equipment that face the outside and are secured when the door of the vehicle is closed. The seated medic can reach all of his or her soft goods without ever having to unbuckle. There's a lot more involved in ambulance safety than changing the configuration of emergency vehicles, said Swartz. You have to have protocols about whether to treat or transport or when it's okay to get out of your seat, he says. The ground ambulance industry kills its employees at a rate of about 10 times that of the air medical business, and we kill more people every year than are killed in law enforcement or fire. The only way to fix this is to be proactive and to do things properly. These aren't accidents, they're crashes. If you see a bunch of people sitting in the back of a pickup truck, you think, how could you be so idiotic? But we think it's okay for medics to stand up in the back of a truck when it's going 70 miles per hour down the highway. You can't be in a business that's here to save lives and then disregard the safety of the people who are giving the service. A lawsuit against Ontonaga County New York Sheriff's Air One helicopter has been dismissed. Mercy Flight Central Incorporated filed the suit in federal court two years ago, alleging that Air One was providing competing services without proper certification. Mercy Flight Central Incorporated claimed that Air One was in violation of federal law because they provided medical rescue services without the proper certification. There are only a few choppers in the areas that can be used for air medical transport, and Mercy Flight claimed that Air One was jumping these calls. Under Sheriff Warren Darby, 
has said that the air rescue work is a small part of Air One's mission. 90% of the time, he said the helicopter is used for law enforcement purposes. We don't jump calls. The calls that have been directed to us for audit that were allegedly jumped, we were in the air on other missions, and being in the air, we were the closest available, he said. In a press release, the sheriff's office said they were pleased with the court's decision to dismiss the lawsuit. The court's decision agreed with the practice of dispatching the closest medevac helicopter. Mercy Flight Central CEO Paul Hyland said he's disappointed with the ruling and plans to appeal. Flight Safety International announced on February 17th that its new Eurocopter EC-135 aircraft simulator is scheduled to enter service by the end of 2010 at the company's Rotorcraft Learning Center of Excellence in Lafayette, Louisiana. This is the first Eurocopter EC-135 aircraft simulator designed by Flight Safety to achieve Level D qualification from the United States Federal Aviation Administration. The EC-135 simulator will feature Flight Safety's 60-inch electronic motion and control loading system and the Vital X visual system. Flight Safety provides a wide variety of factory-authorized pilot and maintenance training programs for the vast majority of the fixed and rotor-wing business aircraft manufacturers, including Bell Helicopter and Sikorsky Aircraft Company. The company will offer a fleet of 15 helicopter simulators and other advanced training devices by year-end located at its learning centers in Fort Worth, Texas, Lafayette, Louisiana, West Palm Beach, Florida, and in the United Kingdom at the Farnborough Airport. Bell Helicopter took the Bell 429 to Hella Expo last week for the start of a tour visiting operators around the world. The light twin-engine helicopter was shipped from the Bell Helicopter Training Academy in Fort Worth, Texas. It arrived in Houston two days prior to Hella Expo. Their Bell helicopter pilots demonstrated the 429's design features to current and potential customers during the show. A second demonstration aircraft recently flew customers at the Singapore Air Show. The 429 flew to India for demonstration flights there and after the show. The schedule then calls for the light twin to travel to Japan. Certified as a single pilot instrument flight rules category A helicopter under the latest requirements of Part 27 airworthiness rules, the 429 is to enter service within weeks with its first customer, Air Methods Corporations. Air Methods will operate the aircraft for Mercy One in Des Moines, Iowa. American Eurocopter announced that Air Methods Corporation ordered eight EC-130 and four AS-350 B-3 helicopters. The deal was finalized at the HAI meeting last week. The order is part of an ongoing Air Methods initiative to maintain the upgrade of its fleet despite the economic challenges throughout the country. All 12 aircraft are scheduled to be delivered this year, and they will join Air Methods' fleet of 330 helicopters providing emergency medical services throughout the United States. The AS-350 family of helicopters provides the air medical community with economical cost of operation, reliability, and performance capabilities to meet or exceed mission requirements. The aircraft is equipped with dual hydraulics, dual-channel FADAC, VEMD, and Fenestron tail rotor. 
the aircraft will be completed with medical interiors from Air Methods Products Division. American Eurocopter also announced that Travis County Starflight has ordered another EC-145 for its public safety air rescue program based in Austin, Texas. This will be the third EC-145 in Starflight's fleet, providing service and support for more than 19 counties in central Texas. Starflight is the only 24-7 aerial emergency medical service in Texas that performs highly specialized emergency response services, including emergency medical transport, still and swift water rescue, search and rescue, high-angled rescue, fire suppression and aerial reconnaissance, and law safety assistance. Operators of Bell Helicopters 407 can use a new supplemental type certificate to increase the hot and high performance of the single-engine helicopter. Bell gained approval of the supplemental type certificate, which allows an increase of the 407's useful load by more than 400 pounds. Alternatively, it may be used to increase the 407's in-ground effect hover by about 3,000 feet. The gains come with no loss of operational safety margin. The STC will be available through Bell Affiliate Aeronautical Accessories Incorporated. The STC draws on excess power available from the 407's Rolls-Royce 250C47B engine to support revisions of the 407's performance charts for in-ground effect and out-of-ground effect hover. Specifically, it uses available power for up to 10% above minimum specification engines for outside air temperature up to 51.7 degrees centigrade or 125 degrees Fahrenheit. The performance boost requires no hardware or software changes to the aircraft or its engine. It also results in no change to time between overhaul or warranty costs because no engine limits are changed. California shock trauma air rescue CEO Joseph F. Cook, a 22-year-old veteran of the organization, will retire on April 1st. His role will be assumed by Lynn Malstrom, current CalSTAR CFO. Cook has presided over the organization since 1987 when it was a single aircraft, 16-employee service. It has developed into the largest nonprofit air ambulance service on the West Coast, caring for nearly 3,000 patients each year with a 25-year injury-free record. CalSTAR currently employs 230 and operates 11 helicopter bases and a fixed-wing program. Lynn Malstrom, who joined CalSTAR last August, was the founder and president of the consulting firm Malstrom & Associates. He has spent more than 32 years in financial, strategic planning, and operational leadership including six years as CFO of Rocky Mountain Helicopters, a company that he reorganized. His management experience spans sectors including healthcare, aviation, high-tech, and government. On January 10th, MedTrans 2, which has been stationed in 96 South Carolina for two years, became LifeLight and relocated to Anderson. Amy West clinical coordinator for LifeLight said the regional hospital and med health approached the MedTrans corporate office about forming a partnership and bringing a helicopter to the Anderson community. Call volumes did not warrant a fourth helicopter to the upstate, 
Medtran 1 in, is in Greenville, Regional 1 in Spartanburg, and Medtrans 2 was in 96. So the company decided to move to Anderson to make access to a medical chopper more equitable. Under the new plan, the Greenwood and Abbeville area is divided between LifeLight and Medtrans 1. When Medtrans 2 was stationed in 96, it was thought there would be more calls from surrounding counties, but LifeNet out of Columbia was handling the majority of the calls from Saluda and Newberry, and an Augusta chopper was taking care of McCormick and Edgefield. Under their agreement, AnMed employs all of the medical crew on the helicopter, while Medtran continues to oversee all the logistics of the helicopter and flights. SmartTrend identified a downtrend for AirMethod stock on January 26. Uh, AirMethods is currently below its 50-day moving average of $31.41 and below its 200-day moving average of $31.26. The LifeLight Network, headquartered in Portland, Oregon, plans to establish a new helicopter base in Lewiston, Idaho, with a critical flight crew on April 15th. LifeLight Network has a fleet of 10 medical helicopters that operate from nine locations in Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. From Saskatchewan, Canada, Roy Cheecham, chief of the Clearwater Rivenden Nation, said that the problems with the Providence's air ambulance service are putting northern patients at risk. He stated that there is a different standard of care in this part of the province. We don't want better service than anyone else. We just want parity. Clearwater owns its own aviation business, which is essentially one plane. It used to fly more than 200 patients per year out of the Clearwater-Lakash area in northwest Saskatchewan to hospital in Saskatoon. The Clearwater plane was used for pregnancies and other non-emergent care that didn't require high-tech equipment and doctors on board. A Saskatchewan health spokesperson said there aren't enough trained medical attendants in the northern community to accompany Clearwater flights, a claim Clearwater officials deny. From Australia, CareFlight will take over all aeromedical services in the Northern Territory for the second half of this year. CareFlight, which presently operates some night services, had been awarded an interim contract to take over all services from July until December this year. They will take over the services from Pearl Aviation while the Northern Territory government puts the service out to tender. The tender, which is to run the aeromedical services for the next 10 years with the option of a five-year extension, closes at the end of March. Pearl Aviation had refused to operate night services at Tyndale Air Base near Catherine because of the Wallaby problem and because of complaints about delays. From England, the contract to run the Isle of Man's air ambulance service for the next five years has been awarded to UK company Capital Charter Limited. Following a tender process, the Exeter-based company, which already provides the air ambulance service in Jersey, will take responsibility for the Manx operation in April of this year. 
Capital Air Charter Limited has been operating for more than 19 years and has a substantial fleet, including six Piper Chieftain PA-31 and two Beechcraft King Air aircraft. Two men were arrested in Danoon, Scotland for pointing a laser pen at the cockpit of an air ambulance as it approached Danoon Hospital. The pair appeared in Danoon Sheriff Court from custody where they pled not guilty. They were bailed to appear for trial on May 26th. A spokesman for the Civil Aviation Authority said that we are becoming increasingly concerned at incidents of this kind. Shining lasers or lights at aircraft in flight pose very real safety risk for the pilots and passengers on board. Targeting emergency service aircraft is particularly worrying. A new law has been introduced which makes these sorts of attacks specific criminal offenses. This will hopefully speed up the prosecutions. We hope perpetrators of this attack are punished appropriately. A doctor who was airlifted to a hospital following a skiing accident has joined the Sussex Air Ambulance in England in a reversal of roles. Roger Alcock of Reich Cross was evacuated from 3,000-meter-high mountains after seriously injuring his knee in a fall in the Alps in France. Ten years later, the 37-year-old joined the MD-902 Explorer crew at their Sussex base in Dunsfold. Roger was born in Fife, Scotland, and moved to Sussex in 2006. He lives with his wife, Christy, an emergency nurse. He qualified as a doctor in 1997 and previously worked in emergency medicine at St. Thomas Hospital in London. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is incorporated into the Facebook page. In first response today, I will be talking to David Kearns, who is the Clinical Coordinator for Flight for Life Colorado, the Region 2 Director for the Association of Air Medical Services, and the Coordinator of the Concern Network. I discussed with David the recent announcement regarding the discontinuation of the Alaris MedSystem 3 multi-channel infusion pump by CareFusion and some grassroots work that he is doing in response. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks, Ed. Glad to be here. Well, I know uh, you wanted to talk about an issue that has come up with the Alaris uh, MedSystem 3 pump. Could you explain what the issue is? Sure. The Alaris company, through its subsidiary CareFusion, um, has decided to see sale of the pump to all that non to non-governmental agencies as of March 1st of this year. By this time next year, they will cease support in the sale of parts uh, to the pump. Mm -hmm. So basically they are getting out of the the business of of selling the Med System 3 pump. Now, do they make a similar one then for hospital work, but that would be too big for transport? Right. They they do produce other pumps that are pole-mounted, really nothing else that is designed for for transport. 
Could you explain, uh, a lot of listeners that are non-clinically oriented, explain exactly what the pump does and why this is so important um, for the air medical community? The, the Med System 3 pump is a, a very small, compact pump, basically about six by six by one or one and a half inches that's capable of pumping three independent infusions, three independent IV solutions, uh, fully programmable. It has a dose rate calculator so you can tell, tell it what specific infusion and what infusion rate you want based on the patient's weight. It, it enables the, trans, the transport med crew to very precisely and very reliably pump some medications that have to be dosed very carefully. It has a, a proven track record of reliability and, uh, and accuracy. It also has no ready replacement on the market. So when this thing is no longer available, transport crews are really going to have nothing else to rely upon at that size. We would be forced to try to get by with much larger devices which can be larger, heavier, much more difficult to secure in an air medical environment and also in an ambulance. David, is there, were they just uh, looking at it from a market perspective? Um, do you know why they made that decision? According to their letter to the various biomedical firms and to users, mm-hmm. they, had, they feel like they had reached a point where they could no longer reliably get parts to put in it and that some components had reached an end of life. I see. That, that's their explanation. But also, the software has not been updated in some time, and for whatever reason, they didn't uh, feel like they wanted to go to the work to update the software. So the, the the big issue near term, I mean, there's no new ones being sold, and there's one year of parts um, availability, but after that, then uh, there would be nothing. Well, what's happening is a couple of companies, a handful of companies are busy buying up all the pumps they can, as well as all of the parts that they can obtain. Uh, one or two companies companies are actually able to manufacture some of the critical components mm-hmm. themselves. Um, we don't know how long that will last or what kind of price structure people will be faced with. And, and that was going to be one of my other questions. So, are there other uh, is there other companies that are you know accumulating parts to help support this afterwards? And you're saying that is a bit uncertain. We, we know of a couple of companies right mm-hmm. now that claim to be doing that. Um, many of them are, are independent biomedical firms where that have been providing support for these pumps already. If you're not a hospital-based operation where you can just go walk down to your biomed department, then you're going to contract with another biomedical firm yes. to handle the maintenance of the pumps. Mm-hmm. So m- several of those companies are, are busy doing what they can to position themselves to to service these pumps into the future. We just we just don't know what that's going to look like going down the road. And in the absence of another product, 
it uh, that that can do what this pump does, given its size and weight, it's a it's a little scary. So there is not. That was going to be my other question. There is not another manufacturer, an alternative that people can move to. Really not. Um, you know, especially looking at the size and weight of, of this device. The only other realistic option is to work with small syringe infusers, much like you would see um, in the neonatal transport environment. Uh, but their volumes are much smaller, typically, than what we're going to be pumping on the, the larger patient or the adult. It... Um, they're not as adequate. Plus, they typically don't um, mount as easily. You're looking at having to mount three of them independently or four of them independently versus mounting one device that is pumping three infusions. I see. David, is this also used in the uh, critical care ground oh, yeah. area too? Okay. So there is a, at least for for us, I mean, in the air medical community or critical care ground community, this is a fairly big installed base. Right. Yeah. But to the manufacturer, perhaps not. Um, you're starting a, a grassroots effort. Tell us about that. Well, my thought was that if Alaris didn't hear about the impact that they were having with this decision, that they might assume that their customers had figured out something else to do. My thought was if we could uh, get a sizable number of people to write the company and just let them know that this is a, a very unpopular decision, that they might change their thinking. I don't know how irreversible the decision is. I don't know that we would be able to change their minds, but at least we would kind of go down swinging so to speak, and let them know that this has a potential impact on the transport of patients. Mm -hmm. So, what uh, do what do, what do you want folks to do? What I have asked uh, people to do through a variety of outlets is to send an email to CareFusion. The email address is supportcenter at carefusion.com. And just let them know what this device means uh, for them when transporting a patient and what impact the the lack of this device could have. It, uh, hopefully, you know, even if it doesn't convince them to, again, support the product, perhaps they'll look at their product development and see about some type of replacement product for this, since there is none other on the market that we're aware of, and nobody seems to be developing one. So you would like, and I'll have this uh, in the show notes of the podcast for those listening. We'll have the email address, but you would like uh, some specific stories, how that's going to impact their program, and maybe even some specific stories on how useful the product is. Right. Okay. You know, what... A, in, in the email that I wrote to the company, I, I told them that I've been working in transport for 21 years. When I first started, we didn't have this pump. And when we had to transport a patient with some kind of infusion, where we had to control it precisely, we were looking at lashing 
hospital-sized pumps to this and going down the road that way, which was not a not a good thing to do. Uh, with the advent of this pump, it changed what we were able to do significantly. And in the meantime, in the ensuing 20 years, the infusions that we are expected to provide and expected to be able to continue has just exploded. In the old days, it might have just been dopamine and lidocaine, and that's all you had to worry about. I see. But nowadays, there's just a plethora of infusions that um, that were required to to carry and to maintain. This pump has really been significant in allowing us to do that. Um, so it has, you know, in a, in a in a way, it has affected practice. It has enabled a level of practice that, in a lot of situations, would be impractical. Mm-hmm. Well, David, I admire you for taking this on. Are, are there others involved uh, with this effort? Um, just the people that I've managed to get to write. Okay, so you're you're the one uh, behind it. Well, uh, I uh, wish you the best of luck, and we're happy to to. Uh, publicize this as part of the podcast. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners about this effort? Well, what I've asked people to do is to write a civil email. Uh, it'd be real angry. <laughs> it'd be real easy to, to write an angry email, I think. Yeah. But to just, in a respectful way, let them know that their product is has had a significant impact in the, in the care of patients in transport. So really, how how good the product is and how meaningful it has been in the care of their patients. Those types of stories are going to help more than an angry email. Correct. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to just get them all angry at me and then decide to not help us. Yeah. So, well, David, uh, thanks. And I, you know, we're happy and I know we've talked, we're going to have you on soon uh, about the concern network, which you've been the coordinator for, for several years now. So, uh, uh, we'll be welcoming you, welcoming you back uh, here soon. So okay. uh, thanks again for being on the podcast today. Okay, thanks. Today I am interviewing Dr. Daniel Hankins, Medical Director of the Mayo Clinic Medical Transport and current President of the Association of Air Medical Services, along with Don Mancuso, the Executive Director and CEO of Ames. Dr. Hankins has been serving as the medical director of the Mayo Clinic Medical Transport Service since 1991 and as the president of Ames since October 2009. He also has been serving as an emergency physician consultant with the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Mayo Clinic since 1991. Dan is boarded in both internal medicine and emergency medicine and did his training at the University of Minnesota. He attended medical school at the University of Pittsburgh and did his undergraduate work at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., majoring in anthropology. Dr. Hankin served as the chairperson of the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems from 1997 through 2000 and the chairperson of the Minnesota Emergency Medical Services Regulatory Board from 2000 through 2004. 
Dan is a native of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and lives in Oronico, Minnesota with his wife, Joan, who is a flight nurse. They have six children and stepchildren and six grandchildren. Joan and he also have their own rural cat rescue shelter with 13 cats on their six-acre property. Don Mancuso is the executive director and CEO of the Association of Air Medical Services, where she has been responsible for overseeing the association's move to Washington, D.C., and transitioning the association's structure and services to meet the industry's changing needs. She also serves as the executive director and chief financial officer for the Medivac Foundation International. Dawn received her CAE, or Certified Association Executive, designation from the American Society of Association Executives in 1992. She also has an undergraduate degree in international relations from Georgetown University and a master's degree in association management from George Washington University. Dawn has been an active member of ASAE and the Greater Washington Society of Association Executives, or GWSAE, and is the past board member of the Board of Directors of ASAE. Dawn is a past winner of GWSAE's Monument Award, ASAE's Diamond Award of Excellence, and the Association's Advance America Summit Award. She is a frequent presenter at association management conferences and has been published in magazines such as Association, Executive Update, and other nonprofit management publications. She is the author of one of the chapters of the Professional Practices in Association Management, a textbook for those in association management profession. In March of 2001, she was named a Fellow of the American Society of Association Executives. Dawn has worked in association management since 1982. She has held positions with other associations, such as the National Association of RV Parks and Campgrounds, the Educational Dealers and Suppliers Association International, the National School Supply and Equipment Association, and the International Chiropractic Association. In her spare time, she has volunteered as an usher for the Washington Shakespeare Theater and has served on the board of several community nonprofits, including PAL, an organization that provides the human animal bond through sponsoring pet therapy visits to nursing homes, uh, veterans' homes, and hospitals, uh, the Association Foundation Group, and Metro Pets, an organization created to promote the adoption of homeless animals and the well-being of companion animals in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. Don resides in Bethesda, Maryland. For full disclosure purposes, I served on the board of Ames for 10 years over a 12-year period and am a past president. I left the board in October 2009 after serving two years as past president. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Dan and Don. It's great to have you. Well, thank you for the privilege of allowing us to talk to you. It's a great opportunity. Thanks, Ed. Sure. Well, I, I know with, with Ames, uh, such a, a long history, there's there's so much to know. Um, but I, I thought, Don, it would be good for you to just give maybe a synopsis of you know how Ames started, um, maybe some of the areas that it went through in the in the years uh, that uh, the organization has been in existence and, you know, what we're up to now. Sure. 
um, Ames has been around, this is actually our 30th year, um, going to be celebrating an anniversary at our annual conference, the Air Medical Transport Conference in the fall. And uh, um, it's a good time to sort of reflect on how far we've come. The association was actually started back in 1980. Um, the initial name for the organization was um, Ash Beams. Um, and if I remember it correctly, it was the American Society for Hospital-Based EMS Air Medical Services. That's right. And um, it grew from an initial meeting in Houston of, I think, maybe 20 people or so. Um, and over time, has grown and expanded its scope. Um, first, I think it added fixed-wing services uh, to the mix, and um, uh, eventually critical care ground services as well. Uh, Ash means the name no longer fit what the organization was was interested in in uh, focusing on. So the, there was a name change to Ames or the Association of Air Medical Services. Um, organization had its first executive director out. Uh, Pasadena, California, and in um, the late 90s, the uh, board directors felt it was time for the organization to move to the Washington, D.C. area in order to um, help it uh, meet its advocacy mission. Um, so the association up and moved here to Alexandria, Virginia. And that was in the end of 96, the beginning of 97, and I was hired Yeah, I remember remember that well. I was on on the board, and uh, Don, you might want to talk a little bit about where you came from to the association. No, sure. Um, my background is not in healthcare, and it's not in aviation, as uh, most people assume one or the other. My background is actually in nonprofit management. Um, I've been doing this line of work, running associations, for almost thirty years myself, um, and I've done it in. Um, the educational fields, uh, represented uh, travel and tourism interests, and other healthcare associations as well. So um, I have a master's degree in uh, association management from GW, uh, certified association executive, uh, which is a designation given by the American Society of Association Executives. Been on the board of ASAE. Um, I'm also a fellow, and I've published in a number of their publications. And I think that was a big uh, change for the association being on the board because we made the uh, the change to say that we really need someone that's an association executive, not necessarily someone in the air medical or critical care transport. Now, I think people today, since you've been with the organization so long, probably think that you uh, came from that background. But uh, it's nice to know that you brought a lot of professionalism to the to our association. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's um, it is a unique endeavor. Um, it, people say if you've seen one air medical service, you've seen one air medical service. That's that's true. Uh, it's also true of associations. So, uh, the, but the principles underlying the management of those or, of nonprofit associations are, are very similar, and um, the policies and procedures that govern the, that process are also similar. So, I hope that I've I've made a contribution. Um, to the, the professionalism and the and the, and the um, uh, improvement of the organization that has helped members in return. 
And and actually, I should tell our listeners, Don actually helped me because I was on the board. I was interested in association management from the board perspective and ended up getting my certified association executive from the American College of or American Society of Association Executives. And uh, it is very much like Don says, a uh, the not-for-profit governance uh, is, is very similar. It's just that your board changes over so much more in an association, and I know you have to deal with that with the elections um, every year, you know, with new people coming on and training people. I think that's the big difference. Talk a little bit, Don, about the uh, vision and mission of the organization. Ames has um, both a mission statement or a core purpose and a vision statement. And the two can be confused. Um, the mission describes what the association does. The vision is how the world, how society is different as a result of the association existing and um, you know what change we'd like to see in the world as a result. Um, so uh, I'll share with you first our core purpose or our mission. That is that Ames represents a unified voice for the entire air medical and critical care transport community. Through common effort, we'll improve the safety and health outcomes of the populations we serve. Um, and, and everything we work on should be uh, should meet that criteria, should, that we are working towards a common voice, we're working towards common effort, and our focus is on um, safety and quality around health outcomes. Our vision, or how the world will be different as a result of AIMS doing its work, is uh, to assure that every person has access to quality air medical and critical care transport. And then we also have a series of um, core, what we call core value statements, which is how we do what we do. Um, and those are focused around um, pretty um, standard uh, sets of values that people will recognize, things like commitment, integrity, respect, and responsibility. And I know just from my time on the board, and I'm sure with your time at the organization, that has changed somewhat through strategic planning. Has there any, been any major changes to vision, mission, and core values? There's always a discussion around um, what, who, what is the audience we serve? Do we serve patients? Do we serve the program directors mm -hmm. of the air medical services and, and critical care transport services? Do we, uh, are we a trade association of organizations? Are we a professional society for the program directors? And um, that discussion continues um, and hopefully will continue in the future because an, or an organization to remain healthy always has to take a look at itself and say, are we in, um, positioning ourselves the right way? Um, I think what you've seen over time, Ed, is, is a commitment to um, a, a larger goal, which is why we have a nonprofit status, and that is that um, we are here to serve the um, medical transport services, but with the goal of um, providing quality care and safe care to a patient. Okay. Let's talk a bit about some of the goals um, for the organization, and uh, those break down in, you know, safety, communications, education, uh, standards and advocacy. Let's talk about education first and 
talk about, you know, the spring conference is coming up next week. Talk about the different programs uh, that Ames has throughout the year. Yeah, education is a, is a core function of what we do. And um, the, the core, um, it fits into our mission and our vision because um, you can't um, improve quality. You can't um, uh, keep the, the industry moving forward if you don't keep looking at new trends, uh, new developments, and, and make sure that um, the people that are providing care are providing the best care possible because they're getting the education they need. So we have a number of different educational programs we offer um, with different target audiences and, and different um, uh, contents. Um, first one you mentioned is our spring conference, which happens every March. And the focus of that is um, public policy, legislative issues, um, some management issues, but largely it focuses on um, public policy questions. So, for instance, this year we have um, representatives from Department of Health and Human Services and IOM talking about um, a new initiative around regionalization of EMS. We also have um, a panel of what folks we call our federal partners. Uh, individuals from the CDC, from Health and Human Services, from NHTSA, from GAO, and others who will come and, and talk about what their agencies are working on in the EMS field and um, how it relates to our members and perhaps how our organization as a representative of, of uh, the community can work collaboratively with those agencies to improve safety and quality. The um, uh, conference this year will be March 17th through the 19th here in Washington, D.C. And uh, encourage anyone who's interested in learning more about it to go on our webpage at www.aams.org to find out more information. Um, some of the other educational programs we offer at are um, is something called the Medical Transport Leadership Institute, which is a um, program that was designed for uh, up-and-coming leaders in the community uh, who want to learn more about how um, management and leadership theory gets applied to um, medical transport services. It's a, a very substantial program. Uh, students attend for a week, the, uh, you know, two years in a row, so it's a two-week program. First year, you uh, there are a number of classes um, on all different kinds of management and leadership topics from HR to marketing to financial management, et cetera. And um, there's a written exam at the end of the first year. Uh, second year, uh, similar types of classes at more advanced level. Uh, there's a group project and an oral presentation. And if, uh, if, if you graduate successfully, um, you earn a designation called a certified medical transport executive. Um, so it's a, it's a, a a big part of what we do is to, to build new leaders for the community. And, and Don, you really um, were behind that because of your previous association work, right, with with the Ogle Bank? Yeah. It, it, it's, it, yeah, it was kind of a um, uh, stars aligned, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, when I first came on board with Ames, I can't tell you how many phone calls I would get from members who were either new in their position as program director or someone interested in advancing within their their, um, their organization and wanted to learn more about 
um, the management leadership side of things, and there wasn't a lot of literature out there for them. Uh, we did pull some articles from the Air Medical Journal, et cetera, but there wasn't a, a comprehensive um, educational program around that. And I had had experience at a previous association where we actually um, held a, a, a course very similar to this in a, in a recreational travel tourism field. And um, uh, it was a partnership program with a facility in Wheeling, West Virginia called Ogilvy Resort, specializes in these kinds of in-depth programs. We actually have a um, educational staff um, that helps run these schools. And, and so I, I reached out to them and, and uh, worked with um, a core group of uh, industry experts to develop curriculum, and, and the school's been running for um, 11 years now. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing, and uh, that actually is going to be the subject of an upcoming podcast is to, to talk about MTLI, so we'll go into a little bit more detail on that. But uh, what, what is the number of people that are now certified medical transport executives? Do you know offhand or... And it's a it's a constantly changing number right. um, because of there's a recertification process that goes right. along with it, but it's um, somewhere in the vicinity of 250. Yeah. Well, I know I've uh, in hiring people too. I've always looked at that as uh, something you know at least preferred, and and you know someone's gone through at least a, a core curriculum. Let's move on uh, to the AMTC. That's a big conference, and I think some people have a misconception on. Uh, especially new folks, and, you know, is that an Ames conference, or, you know, how is that put together um, with the other associations? So if you could explain that. Oh, sure. Um, AMTC, which stands for the Air Medical Transport Conference, is an annual conference Ames puts on, um, moves around the country. We try and actually rotate locations so that um, our members in one region of the country don't have to travel so far every time. Um, this year we'll be in Fort Lauderdale, um, next year we'll be in St. Louis, and the following year we're going to be in Seattle. Um, so you can see we actually have a, a rotation across the country. Um, it is a it is a conference put on by Ames. Um, we do have um, uh, a number of contributing uh, sponsors to the to the conference that are are partners with us in putting on the conference. Um, those include. Um, the Air Medical Physician Association, um, the Air and Surface Transport Nurses Association, the National EMS Pilots Association, uh, the National Association of Flight Paramedics, and the National Association of Air Medical Communication Specialists. And, um, with those groups, um, we have representatives from all the different disciplines working on the educational program. We have um, about 150 different educational sessions that are offered for all different disciplines. You know, we have a, a substantive trade show floor, which uh, right now I think is about 110,000 square feet uh, of exhibit space. We a number of variety of different um, meetings, committee meetings, joint association meetings, um, a number of other organizations that will hold meetings in concert with this conference. HAI uh, often holds their Air Medical Services Committee meeting in concert with it. Um, uh, ASTM, which is American Society for Testing Materials, they have a committee that uh, uh, creates standards for uh, medical transport services as well as other EMS um, types of endeavors, and, and they will often meet in concert with us and others as well. Um, 
there are pre-conference workshops, the, the educational sessions I mentioned, the, tra the meetings, there's the trade show, um, and, and there are often some um, exams for different professional certifications that, I, that take place there as well. Mm -hmm. Can I just make one comment about the MTC? Absolutely. I've uh, gone to every MTC since 1986. And uh, the way I look at it, it is a great way to network. When I first started there as a fresh-faced medical director in 1986, it was a great place to hear about things so I wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, so it gave me perspective on ear medicine, which uh, has continued with uh, dialogue at every AMTC. Well, that's great. It, one of the, the interesting things that I've seen happen over time is we have more and more representatives from people that are interested in our field that um, uh, are coming to AMTC that may not have in the past. So we will regularly get representatives from the FAA, from NTSB, from other regulatory agencies attending. Um, we'll, we'll have job seekers come. We have more and more in the media attending. So it's, it's definitely sort of a... Um, one place um, to come and, and network with as many different kinds of people as possible with an interest in this endeavor. The, the international component has grown too, right, with the, especially yes. Europeans coming over? Yeah. Uh, to that end, Ames has actually entered into the Memorandum of Understanding yes. with two organizations. Um, one is called EHAC out of Europe. Um, it's a group that puts on the AirMed International Conference every third year. And um, the other is ISIS out of Australia. And um, the goal is to, to foster that cross-communication, both at the highest levels of the organizations at the board level, but also um, in, in terms of education at the NTC, um, education at those their international conferences, and um, at the networking level one-on-one, -on -one, provider to provider. Right. Yeah, I've always felt, I mean, I think they first came over because they were looking at things that we were doing, but I think we have just as much to learn from uh, how other areas of the world are doing air medical services. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Nobody nobody knows everything there is to know about this. So right. It's all the networking can only make us all better. Correct. Yeah. Well, there, just to finish up, I know there's a, a new school, Safety Management School, and we talk about that, and also the publications and resources that you have. Yeah, sure. Well, we do have a new school coming up in June. Um, it's our Safety Management Training Academy, and um, it is modeled after the MTLI model in that it is a um, week-long program, um, two years in running. And the concept here is to build a, a greater cadre of individuals in our community with an understanding around the science and theory of safety management and um, safety systems and work with them to apply it to what we do every day. And, um, you know, one of the things we've learned, we, there are safety officers in, in most programs. There are safety officers at all the operators' level. There are um, people who are, you know, every uh, – potential professional in this field has an interest in safety, but they often don't have a lot of exposure to um, traditional didactic classes on safety theory, safety management. Um, and so we wanted to be able to provide that in an environment that focuses on medical transportation issues. And so we'll be running the first course in June. You know, again, at Ogle Bay Resort in Wheeling, West Virginia. 
um, building a cadre of, of regents that uh, will be able to teach who come from a wide variety of backgrounds, some from the community and some not from the community, folks that are experts in different aspects of safety. Um, in terms of the publications we talked about, um, I've already mentioned the Air Medical Journal. Uh, we are partners, um, equal partners with um, all the professional societies in publishing that um, six times a year. It's a combination of um, research, um, industry news, um, uh, updates on the different associations, and anything that would be of interest to um, the reader who comes from this community. Uh, Dan might want to talk a little bit about a column he writes for that, that publication. We also publish a number of other documents, uh, things like we have a, a book that's called Guidelines for Air Medical Crew Curriculum, and it's a, a, a training guideline for trainers on how to educate um, new clinicians coming into the field on how to do this in transport. We have a post-accident and incident um, document. We have a number of other safety documents as well. So we try to be a, a resource to members looking for information on anything that relates to um, medical transportation. Are, are there some, Don, that are more commonly um, requested as far as the publications and documents? Our, um, well, aside from our directory, which members uh, find valuable in, in keeping, um, using it almost as a telephone book of, of it, individuals in the community and networking, um, I would say the guidelines for air medical career education is, is one of the more popular documents. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Air Medical Journal, obviously, is something people look forward to getting on their desk every other month. Um, it has also proven to be very um, interesting and, and valuable to uh, the international uh, members of the organization, way for them to keep up with what's going on. So you're enjoying writing your column there, Dan? Well, actually, uh, now I'm at the point where I'm writing two columns. I write the president's column for the forum, and then I do a uh, uh, literature review in every issue, which tries to pull from the general medical, emergency medical, hmm. trauma and resuscitation literature, uh, which might impact uh, air and ground critical care medicine because uh, there's a lot of things out there that uh, otherwise perhaps air medical people wouldn't be aware of, and uh, so it's a chance to familiarize them with that. Yeah. We have a couple of other periodicals I might just mention in passing. Um, most members know that they exist. They get them in their email mailbox uh, every month, but one is called Ames News and Views, which is a, an update on... Um, activities the association's been involved with, and everything from the committee level to the board level of staff. And um, we've also got a, a, a newsletter that's called CapWatch, which is um, the latest news on either uh, issues that are regulatory in nature or legislative in nature that have to do with public policy. And then finally is On the Fly, which um, is a, a monthly newsletter, sort of like a clipping service of articles that are published elsewhere on safety-related issues. We are actually in the process of um, um, changing up what we do in, uh, with these three newsletters, and so there, there are some enhancements and some improvements coming um, very soon. Um, members should watch for that in April. Are you com combining some, or you don't want to... Talk about that. Yeah. I don't want to 
give out the news. Come on, be the first here. People know the watch for changes. (laughs) Okay. Well, I I think it was. I'm thinking back over the years. It was such a big change when we, you know, went to the email uh, version because it was so much easier to get it to your staff. You know, because I would get it and copy it, and then you'd, you know, pass it around, and by the time everybody. Uh, it was circulated. It would, you know, be three or uh, four days, or even a couple weeks later, depending on that. So it's it's a lot nicely nicely done. It's easier to get out to everybody. So yeah. so we'll be looking for those new changes. Um, let's talk about safety a little bit. About what the, you know, I, I uh, we had a program on the uh, Vision Zero, so we know um, you know what's going on in that area. But uh, I want to talk about uh, some of the other things that Ames is involved with. Certainly, Ames <laughs> is involved heavily um, as far as you know. Don already talked about the Safety Management Academy, and we're also involved in Vision Zero. We're involved in No Pressure. We're involved in working with uh, the NTSB and the FAA as far as implementation of the NTSB recommendations that were made last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of us uh, testified at the NTSB hear- hearings, um, so we've been very, very active as far as that goes. Absolutely. Um, we, when um, situations occur that require a, a stronger focus on safety, um, and here I'm thinking about our summer of 2008, we were having a series of accidents. Ames called for a safety summit, and we've done that on several occasions in the past when we've been experiencing um, a higher-than-usual accident rate. We we work working very hard on the Vision Zero initiative to bring as many safety tools as possible to the table for members so that folks don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, you know, weekly um, uh, tweets out on Twitter with safety messages that can be used by members to talk about um, the issue of the week around safety, build that, that focus and that um, awareness around uh, top-of-mind awareness of safety. Oh, just one more comment, and that is that uh, uh, air medicine is a different animal than any other kind of uh, air process, uh, such as, you know, offshore or or corporate or anything like that, because it's an intersection of two major disciplines, medicine and aviation. And both sides of that coin are very concerned about safety. Um, And so it's not just the purview of aviation. So we need really a cooperative effort as far as safety goes between medicine and aviation to reach a solution to this problem. That's actually a great point, Dan, and I neglected to to talk about that in context of the Safety Management Training Academy. Um, I should add about that that um, the program is not just about aviation safety. We're going to be focusing on aviation safety, of course, but transport safety in general, ground safety, um, and also patient care safety and uh, workplace safety. So, um, you know, it is safety means more than just aviation safety, but... um, although there's been lots of focus on the aviation component of it recently. Mm-hmm. Um, talk also about uh, involvement with IHST. Yeah, uh, IHST stands for the International Helicopter Safety Team, and this is a um, multi-association and, and 
operator and um, participant program. There are many different folks involved in IHST. But it was started by um, HAI and uh, the American Helicopter Society and a number of other associations, including AIMS, have joined on um, with a goal of reducing the number of helicopter accidents, all helicopter accidents worldwide, by 80%. Yeah, not just air medical, it's all... Not uh, just air medical, right. yes. All uses of helicopters in every country. Um, and um, it's it's been a fascinating process to be involved with because um, what we're finding out is there are many similar causes to accidents. We do have a, a there are two teams that are working under IHST. One is the Joint Helicopter um, Implementation Team, Safety Implementation Team, was the Joint Helicopter Safety Analysis Team. The analysis team is responsible for looking at accidents and, and finding uh, commonalities of causes and, and making recommendations that the implementation team will then work on um, solutions for different segments. And um, they've got a, a very good web page at www.ihst.org on which there are um, at least four, and I think they're working on a fifth um, set of tools for operators to use in enhancing safety. One of them, which is um, a model tool for a safety management system. It was designed specifically with the small operator in mind um, because Larger operators have much more, you know, have lots of resources to develop a, a comprehensive safety management system, whereas a smaller operator, well, we believed, needed the tools to help. So, um, it's it's an ongoing process. They they have a conference every other year, usually in Montreal, um, where the findings and the developments um, are are reported on and presented, and new tools are. Um, uh, uh, unveiled, and um, it's it's an important in initiative. That's been it's about what about five or six years now that that's been going on. Yeah, it's, um, I'd say four, but I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, I know it's been uh, been a while. Uh, one more comment, Ed. Uh, having been an EMS physician for almost thirty years, or a ditch doctor, that is, I've always <laughs> been concerned about. Uh, all EMS physicians have always been concerned about scene safety at scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, concerned about the use of red lights and sirens uh, because that's a danger and so so EMS or air medicine physician concern about safety is not something new it's something I think we've always been concerned about it's just it's come more to the forefront as far as talking about things with uh, aviation experts mm -hmm. okay let's move over to uh, standards I know early on Ames actually had a set of standards that uh, weren't mandatory to be a member, but they were suggested standards. And then I think it's been about time passes me by now too. Probably four or five years ago that uh, the board voted and said adopt the the CAMES standard. So talk about the involvement uh, with CAMES and then under other standard setting organizations. Sure. Um came to the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems um, was uh, started, this was before I, I worked for Ames, my understanding is it was started as almost a, a brainchild of many of the, the Ames members and um, Ames actually helped fund the development of, of CAMES. Mm -hmm. um, it, 
it's wonderful to see how far it's grown. There, it's uh, they have a board of 16 or 17 individuals, all of whom are representatives from different organizations. So um, there's lots of input in that standards. Ames has one seat on that board. And um, um, you were right, Ed, in saying that Ames used to have a, a set of what we called minimum standards um, that we rec recommended members abide by and um, then um, also encourage members to um, participate and learn about the CAME standards. And um, it was about five years ago or so that um, the AIMS board took the, the position that, frankly, the minimum standards weren't sufficient. For us to update those minimum standards was, was not a very fruitful endeavor when there, something already existed in the field that uh, involved many different organizations who had some you know, had input into those standards, and that was CAMES. So what the policy the board adopted at the time was that AIMS actively supports members meeting or exceeding those CAMES standards. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that every member has to go in through the process of getting the accreditation because there may be some reasons why they can't, um, budgetary or other, but we do believe that members should, um, in all um, medical transport systems should look at those game standards as uh, a guide for operation. That's just one of several other endeavors that we're involved with, with standard setting. Um, we, we are an active member of the ASTM F30 committee on EMS, which we talked a little bit about when we're talking about AMTC. They're in the middle of, of revising their standards on um, um, uh, rotor wing and fixed wing air medical services, and they're actually meeting next week in Baltimore in concert with the EMS Today meet, uh, conference, and we'll have a representative there working on that. We have um, had a representative on uh, a number of special subcommittees of the RTCA, which is an aviation standard setting organization. Um, most recently, we have a representative working on their subcommittee on helicopter autopilots. Um, we had someone on the committee who worked on the um, helicopter TAWS standard, or the, the what they call minimum operating. Um, uh, it's MOPS, minimum operating. Uh, oh goodness, I've forgotten. But anyway, it's 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 the standard that the FAA uses for uh, writing. Um, their regulations and their requirements. Um, and that's we, on, that's on TAWS, which is train awareness. Well, well, yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. Training, yes. That, that's already been uh, completed. I see. Um, but currently working on helicopter autopilot. Okay. Um, in addition to that, we have a standards committee. Um, we do have certain um, positions on our, our webpage. And... Um, I know that there's an initiative that um, EAMS is supporting um, that ASAP and any MSPs involved with it. Pam, I want to talk about. Well, as I said earlier, um, I think EMS physicians have always been concerned about safety from both an air and ground standpoint. Um, and because of the horrendous year we had in 2008, I think it's on the radar screen of many physician groups that are involved in uh, emergency care. And so NMSP, AMPA, and ASAP have started a process to develop a white paper as far as helicopter utilization from a medical standpoint 
and uh, integration into the emergency services system. And this is in a very early stage right now. But the goal is, once we develop the white paper, is we bring it out for dialogue among all the stakeholders, especially on the federal level, because you're only going to change a system if you can get all the groups together, especially medical and aviation, as far as, okay, how can we resolve these issues as far as appropriate utilization of helicopters and how do we integrate it into the EMS system? And one of the previous hats I wore was as a public official on the regulatory board for EMS in Minnesota. And so I'm very sensitive to systems issues as far as covering the citizens of the state from a public safety standpoint. Okay. I, I know we have uh, a lot to cover, and I want to spend a good amount of time on the advocacy efforts of the association. But, Don, before we get to that, I know you have a, a new uh, public information officer in, in Cindy Price. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the changes in the communications uh, of the association, and especially using some of the new tools like social media tools? Absolutely. Um, it, this has been a new initiative for us in the last um, year and a half. Um, before that time, we we would respond to media inquiries and did some um, a small level of, of public relations efforts um, as, as we started to build our, our public relations program and got to the point where it was time to hire a professional. And we did a woman by the name of Cindy Price, who's our our PR specialist who's been um, spent her first year actually learning the industry and, and working with us and responding to uh, the NTSB hearings and, and the, the uh, congressional hearings that took place um, last April and, and then um, a lot of media inquiries as a result of those two events. Um, we are uh, launching this year um, some more comprehensive and proactive communications plan. There's a number of different components to it, um, including a public education component, as well as um, a component that helps provide tools to our members um, who want to conduct public relations in their local area. Um, Part of that public education program involves use of social media. We have a Facebook page. We're using Twitter. Um, and and uh, obviously, uh, we're in the process, actually, of upgrading our web page as well. Um, public education, we're focusing on a lot of um, uh, issues, uh, reasons why our members fly. So traumatic injuries, stroke. Uh, cardiac, neonatal, those kinds of things, and trying to tie our communications to awareness months that already are on the calendar and um, are provide a, a, a venue for us to communicate the good work that our members do every day. So, for instance, we in uh, March is Brain Injury Awareness Month, and we did send out um, a radio spot um, showcasing, actually, Dan, uh, talking about... Um, some of the um, issues around, um, sorry, some of the issues around uh, brain injuries that happen as a result of skiing accidents, et cetera. And um, through that radio spot, we've been able to garner more than 3.2 million listeners um, just through one venue, which is called the American Urban Radio Network. So um, we've, we've, 
you know, finding that successful, we will continue to do that um, as other um, awareness months come along. Uh, we have a calendar that we've put together, and, and we'll be working on tools to help our members take advantage of that as well. It's a good tie-in. And I, Dan, you just put out one on stroke, too, right? Uh, yes, and I think the, the point of this is that there are certain time-dependent emergencies that air medicine is an important part of the safety net, especially with uh, rural hospital closings, uh, with more and more patients being funneled in tertiary centers because uh, because of inability of local hospitals to care for things, uh, and you get better care with trauma and strokes and and STEMIs or you know heart attacks at uh, big tertiary centers. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't the the research had shown what half half of the population is more than a half hour away from care, and that uh, air medical can help fill that gap. Well, there's been at least three papers on that. One was in uh, JAMA in 2005, and one was in uh, I think JAMA this year. Uh, but one was on trauma uh, access, and one was on burn care access. And mm-hmm. there's actually a third one now, more recently, on pediatric critical care access which shows that uh, large areas of the country are not within an hour of tertiary care, even by air. Um, so, I mean, that's an important uh, point as far as uh, the safety net goals for uh, all Americans. Right. But through the Medevac Foundation International, you, Ames also helps push uh, research Yeah, that's right. Um, Out of our office, we um, are operating the Medevac Foundation International, which again was a foundation uh, started by Ames, um, was the Ames Foundation. We had a merger with FAR, or the Foundation for Air Medical Research, and um, uh, the resulting organization, that merger, was called the Foundation for Air Medical Research and Education, which has recently gone through a name change to be the Medevac Foundation International. The hopes for the new name is obviously to make it a lot more accessible to people outside our community. And the the goal of the, the foundation is to um, support um, the charitable efforts of, of the community and of Ames. And um, those include things like um, the research that needs to be conducted, whether that's clinical research or um, data and benchmarking or educational um, grants that are given out for special educational programs. Um, it also includes um, scholarships. We have a, a scholarship to MTLI. We have a scholarship for the child of an air medical crew member um, going to college, uh, an air medical crew member was passed away in an accident. Um, and we also have a family grant fund, which provides emergency funds to families um, where uh, a family member who's a medical crew member or, or an aviation crew member on a, um, uh, on a crash has passed away has been seriously injured. So we've got a number of different programs going on with the foundation that um, we're always looking for support for. And um, the goal of the foundation is to raise those charitable funds to help underwrite the charitable mission for the community. Mm-hmm. The uh, You had mentioned on the 30th anniversary, um, you're also going to be introducing a new week. Want to talk about that? 
Um, well, it's a little premature to, to go into a lot of detail on it. Um, <laughs> I can. <laughs> but um, you're right. As part of our communications plan, we're looking at uh, National Medevac Week, and um, uh, there'll be more details about that coming soon. Okay. I guess I was given the uh, advance uh, notice of that, so we'll. Uh, yep. We'll, we'll get. <laughs> got we'll, an exclusive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll get back. Uh, one more comment about research, Ed. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, research is a foundation for everything we do as far as validation goes. If we don't have research showing that what we do is worthwhile as far as outcomes go, then there's really no point in doing what we're doing. So we need research to establish that what we're doing is valid, or do we need to do it a different way? I mean, all the papers that I review in my column, every issue of Air Medical Journal, are, are papers that deal with research uh, on outcomes. Uh, in the main. And again, if we don't know what we're doing, then we can't establish policy as far as utilization and integration. Yeah. And there is so much work out there. I mean, I've talked to the folks with the University of Utah and then on the podcast, uh, the Center for Medical Transport Research um, that's been developed. So, uh, And I know they're getting some funding through the foundation, too. Well, let's move on um, to, I think, uh, Dan's favorite topic, which is uh, advocacy, but especially uh, healthcare reform. Um, Dan, what are your thoughts on what's going on recently well, with that and the impact on the air medical community? Well, healthcare reimbursement uh, has always been kind of a mystery to me. Uh, I've been practicing for 35 years. Uh, in the medical system under CMS. So basically my whole medical practice has been in the era of CMS. And uh, I'm still somewhat bewildered. Uh, The situation now, I think, is very fluid. Um, One of the biggest developments in the last week has been the fact that uh, CMS has cut physician reimbursement by 21%. Yes. In fact, on March 1st which um, certainly has an impact on the whole industry because um, basically it means we're all competing for pieces of a smaller pie. Um, And all the physician groups, I think, are going to be very vocal about this cut. Uh, I don't know if it will stand or not. There's a move afoot to uh, reinstitute the reimbursement and delay it. But, um, you know, we don't really know what's going to come out of the health care reform bill and the summit that uh, President Obama just had. Uh, So it's very fluid. It's something that we have to monitor, and I don't think we know the impact yet on either air or ground EMS as far as uh, reimbursement goes. Yeah, I think think it was just today that there was, um, I'm trying to look back, but a a one-month reprieve on that um, um, reduction in fees to give to give them more time. So there might be uh, some movement uh, on that. I think they're trying, but the most recent uh, ASAP brief, which comes out daily, Mm -hmm. uh, indicated that it's still in effect. It wasn't delayed yet. There was the center adjourned or something before uh, they could get the delay into effect. So again, it's a fluid uh, situation, and uh, we just have to continuously monitor it. Did you get a chance to watch any of uh, Obama's summit? No, unfortunately, I was uh, working sh- working shifts in the ER, so I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was uh, 
uh, I was uh, up skiing last week, and so I had a little bit of time. I saw the very beginning of it. I'm not sure if anything's going to come out. I think the latest is he's trying to work, you know, and incorporating some of the Republican proposals. But it sounds like they're going to use reconciliation on this, um, at least try to, to get it passed. Reconciliation is good. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the the uh, the possible scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also heard that um, if all else fails, they can wait till um, after the elections and and use the lame duck session to to do something. As oh, well. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah. I think they want the Democrats at least want to get this uh, off the thing and move on to um, jobs and other. You know the economy versus um, mm-hmm. healthcare. Well, let's talk about some of the other um, advocacy um, pieces that Ames is working on. Well, we have a, a pretty full agenda, and much of it is is been um, put on hold because of all the discussion going on in the health healthcare reform. Mm-hmm. That said, um, there's still a lot of groundwork that we're doing. Um, trying to monitor what, if anything, is happening on aviation safety legislation. Um, we understand that the uh, reauthorization bill for the FAA may come up in fairly short order, and um, uh, as part and parcel of that, may, we may see and could very well see some of the aviation safety legislation we've seen in the past um, be brought back. Um, we are working with... Um, uh, a number of different individuals and different approaches to try and, and support um, the use of the HEMS weather tool uh, and, and move that weather tool out of its um, um, experimental phase into something that could be used for um, uh, proactively used for aviation decision making. Um, and to that end, um, working to support the introduction of new weather stations into the, into the system. Um, we uh, anticipate that the FAA will be releasing its notice of proposed rulemaking in response to the NTSB recommendations on um, helicopter EMS safety, and that um, we'll we'll be hearing from FAA representatives next week at our spring conference. But we anticipate um, seeing something uh, in the summer, mm-hmm. um, which will there'll be a, a, a time period by which we have to submit comments. And we're also working actively with other groups that um, are coalitions here in the Washington, D.C. area on issues of importance to us. A big one of that is Advocates for EMS, um, and another is the National Healthcare Coalition. Um, so there's others as well, smaller issues on um, PSOB and um, uh, as uh, Dan's also mentioned, obviously not so small is, is reimbursement and so we're monitoring a lot of issues right now. And you have a new government relations coordinator, too. Okay. Yeah. Um, our new government relations manager is a fellow by the name of Greg Lewinsky. Um, he started um, not long before uh, AMTC, <laughs> so he, he uh, got to meet some of the members then. But uh, he comes to us from National Rural Health Association and um, has also worked with a number of hospital organizations. So he has a pretty extensive background in, in healthcare issues. Yeah. And then uh, you forgot, uh, Cindy actually came from American College of Emergency Physicians. 
That's right. right she yeah. did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so some good, uh, um, be, you know, staff uh, background in, in healthcare issues. Well, let me go into, I think, probably some of the more difficult uh, questions. Uh, as you all know, uh, you know, we've been through some very turbulent times um, with the association. Uh, Dan mentioned the, the crashes uh, in 2008, um, and certainly um, Sandy Kincaid had her hands full as, as president those two years, probably the most turbulent that we've had uh, maybe in the history of the organization. Um, but from that, we've, we've seemed to be there, there, you know, some are calling it a division uh, where you have uh, the uh, Air Medical Operators Association or MOA and the now what is called, uh, used to be the patient first, now the uh, Association for Critical Care Transport and things that they're working on. What do you think, I mean, what's AIM's, you know, view of all this and how, where is the association putting itself um, or, you know, for, the, for, the, for now and into the future with these other two organizations now? Well, um, let me comment on that, Ed, and that is, you probably know that one of my favorite quotes is from Ben Franklin. <laughs> Which, when he said the Continental Congress, we must hang <laughs> together, or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. Um, my vision has always been consensus building and cooperation. And as far as I'm concerned, AIMS uh, can and will work with any organization that is interested or has an interest in uh, air medicine or ground critical care. And we need to develop a consensus so that we have a common message to uh, the regulators. Uh, and that's state and federal. If we don't, um, if you have a dissonant message, then things will not come out in a way that any of us like it. So we have to work together on where can we agree and what is our message going to be. One of the things that um, the listeners should be aware of is that we do have a cross-section of membership in all of our committees and at the board level. And um, so we are the place to have the, a dialogue um, with people that have differing points of view and finding a, a place where um, we can all have some agreement and work forward, you know, move forward on things. There's lots of areas for agreement. Um, and and we can also be the source of information on areas where there isn't agreement. We can share the viewpoints of different um, individuals uh, with the membership and help our members, um, you know, understand why there's a disagreement. Mm-hmm. I think you uh, know that I've, you know, interviewed both um, associations in previous podcasts, and I, I get the sense from both of them they still want to be members of AIMS, but this is a particular area that they feel that they need to. Um, be be separate and work on things uh, themselves. Um, is it hard to navigate that with members, knowing that they are opposed to each other on on issues of, especially around state regulation? Well, I I think that the um, dialogue has been productive. I think that surprisingly, they have found areas of agreement. There are areas where they have to agree or disagree. But I don't think that the 
disagreement is quite as shrill as it once was, at least in my mm -hmm. opinion it isn't. So I think that, you know, the longer you talk about this and hash through things, um, the better consensus you reach and you reach a new plateau of uh, agreement. What do you think have been some of the areas of disagreement that have been hard and, and now some of the areas uh, of, of agreement? Well, I think it's clear that everyone's concerned about safety. Um, mm -hmm. There's no no mm -hmm. doubt about that. Every stakeholder in this industry, ground and air, uh, are interested in safety. Uh, we have to make safety. Apparently, um, the uh, NIOSH is coming out with a paper soon about ground EMS as far as injuries in ground EMS, and that should be a very enlightening document because um, I think uh, ground EMS is a very dangerous occupation too. And so we need to find areas that we can all agree to uh, to work together as far as safety goes. And then what can we do to ensure integration? I mean, one of the problems is that, uh, with my former public official hat on, is that we really have an EMS non-system, if you think about it. Because we have 50 states with totally different EMS systems in each state. We have different levels of... Uh, EMT, paramedic, and critical care provider defined in each state, um, and it's uh, it's very difficult to get integration into a system where it's so different from one state to another. So I think we need some dialogue on the federal level among all of the medical and aviation stakeholders to say how can we how can we uh, integrate and get agreement between the medical needs of the EMS system nationally and the aviation needs? Aviation needs to be controlled by the FAA, but states need to deal with the aspects of public safety as far as covering their citizens. So these are not necessarily mutually exclusive uh, things. Mm -hmm. Don, how, how has it been from a government relations advocacy? Because... Uh, you know, Ames has had some big wins in the past, especially over the negotiated rulemaking, had a presence on the Hill. Uh, I think staffers actually, you know, came to Ames and looking for uh, advice on things. And when you have different groups over on the Hill, it gets a little confusing. Has that changed recently? Well, it is a different environment to have multiple groups talking to legislators on the Hill. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not unusual for um, legislator to come to us and say, we've um, uh, heard from another organization that um, they would like to see X happen or Y happen. And we have to, to address those. Now, whether that's an HAI or medical services committee or if it's a, um, uh, one of our, you know, um, allied society groups, um, we have to take a look at the issue and, and address it on its merit, and um, that takes collaboration. Um, there's one example where um, we were remained neutral on the policy in question, um, and other time, we'll just have to address them as they come up. Mm -hmm. I, I think the other big thing is when your other associations form, obviously, they need money um, as well as Ames, and of course we've got some difficult uh, uh, financial times that we've been through. Hopefully we're on the way 
out of that, and healthcare seems to have lagged behind other industries. Um, do you see that as a, an issue with you know the dues being paid or, or organizations being asked to pay several sets of dues and the, the potential impact on AIMS for that? Well, there's, a, there's limited resources out there. We recognize mm-hmm. that. Um, we have to make sure that the value we provide to membership is it continues to be a high enough level to warrant people to make the decision to, to remain members or to join for the first time. Um, we're, you know, in the middle of our dues um, renewal period, and our big dues renewal period. Our membership rolls over on an anniversary date, so... Um, if you join in May, you won't you won't have to pay again until uh, April or so. So it's it's a rolling kind of a thing. And we're going to monitor obviously how that how that happens and and make sure that we you know keep in touch with our members and and understand what's important to them and and make the case for continued membership. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I've kept you guys. Uh over time already. Uh, is there anything else that uh, you want to say uh, to the listeners of the podcast about AIMS? Well, as always, let's be careful out there. And secondly, off message, spay and neuter your pets. <laughs> <laughs> now, where's that from? I support both of those, Dan. <laughs> well, Don and I are both advocates for animals, so it's oh, just okay. something that I don't know if you're going to indicate that in your induction, but uh, it's just part of our other life where we uh, care very much about animals. Yeah, I've always said, and it's been so much fun doing these podcasts because I've learned something new about people. And Dan, I didn't realize you ran a uh, cat rescue service, so that's that's very interesting. We have, uh, Don and I have talked over the years because we have two rescue cats, um, and uh, they're just, they're great, a lot of fun. Um, Just one Final question, Dan. I think are you? Is it the third president of Ames that uh, has been a physician, or is it fourth? And I, and whatever. No, um, how have you enjoyed being uh, president of Ames? No, I think yeah, I'm the third. It's Frank Thomas and Greg Powell and myself. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, and those are uh, big shoes to fill. I admire both of those <laughs> yes. gentlemen a great deal. Yeah. Um, and I, I think this is a good time for a physician to be president of Ames because I think that. Uh, you know, I come with a an attitude of being very inclusive rather than exclusive, and aviation and medicine, the two big disciplines, have to work together. Yeah. So, well, guys, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to to be on the podcast, and uh, really appreciate uh, all your comments and your um, uh, information. Thank you, Ed. Enjoyed it, Ed. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206 206- Three five zero zero two seven eight. I apologize for the extra length of this podcast, but there was quite a bit of news over the two-week period with me being away last week. 
Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song of the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Please continue to keep the citizens of Haiti, the victims of the earthquake, and all the volunteers in your thoughts and prayers. Until the next episode, take care and fly safe. Thank you.